Genesis chapter 49 this evening. So next week we'll start the book of Exodus as we're going through the Bible on Wednesday night. So please read ahead and start to get familiar uh, with the the book of, of Exodus. So let's pray. Father, thanks for the joy of studying the book of Genesis, uh, to see, Lord, that you're the author of beginnings, you're the author of mankind, Lord, the author of the gospel, Lord, the birth of the nation of Israel. And as we look at the end of Jacob's life and the end of Joseph's life, Lord, we see your strong hand, your sovereign hand, working good in the midst of evil, in spite of evil. So, Lord, we be encouraged tonight by your faithfulness, by your grace, Would you pour out your spirit to speak to our hearts? And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. As this is our last study in the book of Genesis, this outline summarizes this book. So if you want to sum it up in just a brief way, you can look at the book of Genesis by four major events. You've got creation, the fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. So four major events and then four major people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Four events, four people really summarize this book. The book of Genesis means beginnings, as God is the beginning, the author of of mankind, of humanity, as he is the author of the gospel. Throughout the book of Genesis, we've seen this prophecy to the future uh, Messiah. We also see that God is the author of the nation of Israel. As we've been looking at the 12 sons of Jacob, it's the birth of the 12 tribes of Israel. So tonight we focus at the end of Jacob's life. He's come to Egypt. He's been living in Egypt for some time as the family is taken refuge under Joseph because of the famine. And Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Just by the fact that these 12 sons are gathered together has been a work of God's grace. It's been a work of God's redemption. Joseph's been sold as a slave, but God has brought them back together. Had to bring Jacob great joy to be able to gather his 12 sons together at the end of his life. And he says, these things will befall you. So God gives him a word of prophecy for each one of his sons and their future tribes. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. The excellence of dignity and the excellence of power. Begins with his oldest, with Reuben. If you're, you're a parent, you know, with your oldest child, you're really growing and learning as a parent, are you? You've never had an infant before. You've never had a three-year-old before. You've never had a a 15-year-old. And here Jacob says, you're my firstborn, and you have my might. You have the beginning of my strength. You have the excellency of dignity and of power. But here's the negative sides to Reuben's character. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. We know that Reuben went for a play for power in the family when Rachel passed away. And he went and had sexual relationship with Rachel's handmaiden, which was also one of Jacob's wives. Jacob practiced polygamy. And this was very strategic on Reuben's part to to try to have power inside of the family. We never see Jacob addressing this with Reuben when it happened. 
The only time we see this addressed is right here at the end of Jacob's life. So he's an old man. He's on his deathbed. And he's like, I remember when you did this with my, my wife. And because of that, he says, you're not going to excel. You're unstable in all of your ways. When we're in sexual sin, it causes us to be unstable. It causes us to not be able to excel, and we see that in the life of Reuben. Reuben's character is one that's as unstable as water. Sometimes water is so peaceful, isn't it? But then it can be a huge storm in just a moment's notice, and that represents uh, Reuben's character. In verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instrument of cruelty in their own dwelling place. You may remember that Simeon and Levi committed genocide. Their sister was raped. So they had this plan of going to the village and saying, well, if you want to marry my sister, all of the males need to be circumcised. They waited till the third day when they were extra sore from the healing of circumcision and went in and wiped out all of the males. And here we find Jacob reminding them of this and says, you're instruments of cruelty in your dwelling place. The story of Jacob's 12 sons is not pleasant. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of dysfunction. It's very messy. But it's from these 12 boys that God births the 12 tribes of Israel, that he births his chosen people, it's a testimony of God's grace. When we look at our lives, we see brokenness in our lives. We see failure in our lives. And it points us to the gospel. It points us to the cross of of Jesus Christ that's able to redeem our lives and bring out his his work, his masterpiece. In verse 6, let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united with their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Jacob's saying, you don't want to get counsel from these guys. You don't want counsel from an angry man. You don't want to link your honor to, to these two, right? What do we want our character to be? Do we want our character to be one where, where people can say, I can receive counsel from you. You know, I can link my honor with you. I can partner my honor with you. Or they would go, you know, you have to be careful uh, about them. And Simeon and Levi were, were those men. Their anger, even in revenge, got the best of them. And in Ephesians, it tells us to be angry and to not sin. That's the trick, right? A lot of times when anger is knocking, sin is very close. Sin is the, at the door. And relying upon the Lord and crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't want to be consumed by my anger. Deliver me from from my anger. Cursed be their anger for its fierce and their wrath for its cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Simeon, if we look at his descendants as it becomes a tribe, when they leave Egypt, there's a census. At that time, they're the third largest tribe. But by the time there's the second census, they're the smallest uh, tribe. They're a tribe that ends up wandering and being scattered. How about the Levites? The Levites become priests. And the Levites never received an inheritance in the land and were scattered throughout all of the nation of Israel. So if you were of the tribe of Levi, then you would be, be scattered. And so God fulfilled this prophecy. But we also see God's grace to the tribe of Levi. Uh, Would you... Pick the genocidal tribe as the tribe of priests, right? 
And the thing with the Levites is they were closest to the presence of God. That was the joy of being able to serve. They didn't have an inheritance, but they were closest to God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant, represented in the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's grace, that he would choose the tribe of Levi to be his priests, to be close to to his presence. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Now we look at Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp for the prey, my son, you have gone up. His, he bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? So Ju- Judah is described as a lion's whelp or a lion's pup. Revelations 5, 5 tells us that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from the lineage of Judah. What do we know about Judah's character? Judah's character is one where he sold his brother as a slave. He also did wrong by Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and went and had sex with a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law. If you missed that study, go back. It's, it's a study in and of itself. But Judah's character was not solid. But later in his life, we see Judah having more sound character. We see him sticking up for Benjamin and taking responsibility before Joseph when he didn't know that it was, was Joseph. God transformed the character of Judah. That being said, would you pick Judah to have the birth of the Messiah? Who would you pick? I'd pick Joseph, hands down, right? His two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that's the lineage that would make the most logical sense for the birth of the Messiah. But God says, no, the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah because God was giving the message very clearly early on, even at the birth of Jesus as his genealogy, that Jesus was coming for sinners. Isn't that good news? That God's, God's grace? In verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of all people. So the, the shep, scepter not departing from Judah nor a lawgiver from be, between his feet until Shiloh or Messiah comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people To the Messiah, people will be obedient and submit their lives. So verse 10 is this prophecy of the Messiah coming from the tribe of Judah. Verse 11 and 12, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. We still value that, right? That's why we get the teeth whitening strips. All right. Hey, if you're a coffee drinker, don't worry about it. It's worth it because I'm with you on the drinking the coffee, right? Both all of this, verses 11 and 12, speaks of prosperity, victory, and blessing that God is speaking to the tribe of Judah. Zebulun should dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. Ishakar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. 
He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. And Ishakar became victims to invading armies. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So with the tribe of Dan is a great calling, great responsibility as a judge over the tribes of Israel. But here we see the failure of the calling in verse 17. Dan shall be a servant, serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Here in Colorado, we have some rattlesnakes and there's certain parts of the city where you do trails that are known to have some rattlesnakes. You're, maybe you're riding your mountain bike or you're jogging or, or hiking and it's kind of in the back of your mind. Like, I, I need to be careful and watch out for, for, for some rattlesnakes. Well, this is Dan. It's a serpent by the way. It's a viper by the path. And Dan, as we'll look into the, later into the Old Testament, we see Samson's from the tribe of Dan. Idolatry is introduced to the nation of Israel in Judges 18 through the tribe of Dan. And then in 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam sets up golden calves in Dan. And so they were this, this viper that bit you by the heel that did great damage. Verse 18, I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. I think this is really interesting. In the midst of Jacob being an old man and he's praying through and thinking through his 12 sons' lives and beginning to speak these words of prophecy over them, it's not all good. There's some difficult things that he's sharing with his sons and some difficult aspects to their character. And he seems to simply sigh and pray for God's work in his family. I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. Almost as if, God, would you please work in these boys, right? And God, would you please bring salvation in the midst, midst of this? And he's relying upon God's faithfulness. He's relying upon God's grace. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Gad chose to dwell on the east side of the Jordan River. They chose not to enter into the land that God had for them, and they did become very vulnerable. In verse 20, bread for Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. And Asher established on the north coast of Canaan, and they were very prosperous. In verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Naphtali is the Sea of Galilee region. And here it says, a deer is let loose by Naphtali, and he uses beautiful words. Jesus came to the region of Sea of Galilee, spent most of his public ministry there, and brought freedom, and also spoke the most beautiful words, words of truth. And it gets to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by well. His branches run before the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Speaks of the fruit of Joseph's life. Didn't Joseph have tremendous fruit? Everywhere he went, the Lord was with him and blessed him and used him and prospered him. God used Joseph to save so many people's lives. But also, Joseph came under great adversity. 
People took shots at Joseph. His brother took shots at him. Potiphar's wife took shots at him. How many people didn't really appreciate Joseph's leadership when he was the second in command to Pharaoh? But notice that God's hand was stronger than the arrows that were shot against him. Isn't that encouraging? God's hand is stronger than the adversity that comes against you. God was mighty on the behalf of Joseph. God's power was shown through the life of Joseph. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breasts and of the womb, the blessing of your father have exalted the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and the crown of the head of him who is separated, who was separated from his brothers. <laughs> it's quite the blessing pronounced on Joseph from Jacob. He just really pours out the blessing upon Joseph. You might be going, man, it would be kind of nice to be Joseph. Man, it'd be kind of nice to have a father or a grandfather or a mom or a grandma that would bless me in this way. Well, we're told in the book of Ephesians that every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ. So we've received even more blessing than Joseph's received. Every blessing has been poured on us because we're in Christ. What a wonderful position that has been given to us in Christ. Well, there's one more tribe, Benjamin, the youngest, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. It makes you wonder what all these guys' personalities were like. I mean, what was Joseph like? And then what was Benjamin like? And he's the youngest, and he's growing up with these 11 brothers. And it appears that Benjamin was tough. I mean, he was just tough as nails. And so dad looks at him and says, you're like ravenous wolves, right? On our vacation this summer, we drove back through Idaho, and I was talking with uh, one of my friends that I went to school ministry with that lives in Nampa, Idaho, and and he's an avid hunter, and they released Canadian wolves years back in in Idaho, and it's destroying the elk herds, and it's gone completely out of control, and these wolves are are eating the elk just for fun. They're, they're, They're not even in need of the, the food, but they're, they're killing all the elk. And so that bummed out my friend because he's, he's an elk hunter. But I don't know about you, but I don't really want to be out in the mountains and find a pack of ravenous wolves. No thank you, right? There, there's an element to that, that that's very intimidating. But yet this describes the character of Benjamin. And he's going to pray and devour in the morning and divide the spoil at night. And we see this carried out. This word fulfilled about the tribe of Benjamin. In Judges 18 through 20, there's a civil war with the other tribes of Israel. Benjamin against the other tribes. And the Benjamins were outnumbered 400,000 to 26,700. So there's only 26,700 of the tribe of Benjamin and 400,000 warriors of the other tribes. And the tribe of Benjamin comes out victorious killing 40,000 of the opposition. Tells us there was 700 of the tribe of Benjamin that were left-handed, that were elite warriors. Can we get out, give a shout out to the lefties out there today, right? 
So apparently these left-handed warriors you didn't want to mess with from the tribe of Benjamin, they turned out to be fierce warriors. The first king of Israel, Saul, comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and in all of his flaws in his character, he was a fierce warrior, right? And so Jacob could see this in Benjamin, and he speaks this into to Benjamin's life. In verse 28, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. This is something that has held true uh, in the nation of Israel to this day. Uh, to those who practice Judaism, who believe in the Old Testament but don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, is they put a lot of value on blessing their children, on praying for their children. If you go to an Orthodox Jewish worship service, a lot of times there'll be a point in their worship service where they'll bring up the kids and they'll pray, speak a blessing over, over the kids. And this is something I think that we as parents, we say, Lord, first we see our kids as a blessing, see the value of prayer, and there's something about putting our hands on our children and just praying for them and praying blessing upon them and speaking the things of God into their life and affirming things in their character that you see to be good and that you see to be redemptive. And even if you have adult children, it's not too late, you know? To, to call them up and say, hey, let me pray for you. Or I want you to know this. I'm so proud of you. And these are some things that in your life that I see to be a real gift from God. And Jacob shows faith to make sure that he's prayed for his sons, that he's blessed them as he's departing. In verse 29, then he charged them and said to them, I'm in de- I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for the burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field in the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heath. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. That's a pretty good way to go right there. Say goodbye to your family. Speak blessing upon them. Say, guys, uh, here's my burial instructions. Cremation's a lot cheaper. Let's just go that route. That's not what he said, but... Just seeing if you guys were listening. He says, why don't you bury me back in Canaan? Because that's where my family is buried. But it's much more than that. It's God has promised to give us this land. They're not yet a nation. They're not yet a mighty people. They don't have the land of Canaan. But he's believing in faith that God is going to give to them the land of Canaan. He ends his life in faith. Chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for them, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. This shows the influence that Joseph has in Egypt 
as his father passes away, all of the nation of Egypt mourns. He is embalmed with those with dignity. And 40 days in that process of embalming, and then the whole nation mourns for 70 days. Now, when the days of mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back to you. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. This shows how much Pharaoh trusts Joseph. There's no doubt in Pharaoh's mind that Joseph's going to return. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the house of Joseph, his brothers, his father's house, Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. So the servants of Pharaoh. Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all of the servants of Pharaoh and the elder of his house. One of the things to take note of of this is the Egyptians are being impacted by the faithfulness of Joseph and this story that God is unfolding with his brothers and his dad, Jacob. They're seeing this testimony of God's faithfulness. Joseph's story is about God's glory. Joseph's story is God declaring his goodness to to Egypt. And that's interesting, isn't it? We, We need to be reminded of that, that God is telling his glory through our lives. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and there they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizram, which is beyond the Jordan. Abel Mizram means mourning of Egypt. So they're traveling from Egypt to Canaan, which is today Israel. They get to the Jordan River and they stop and they mourn for seven days. And the Canaanites are like, this is a big deal. Look at the Egyptians. They are really mourning here. And they give it the name mourning of Egypt. This is a side note, but one of the things that we don't see in our culture is an ability to mourn the death of a loved one. You know, we tend as a culture to not slow down, to not take any time. And if you slow down and you take time to mourn, a lot of times people on the outside go, hey, it's just time to get over it and it's time to move on. And and why are you mourning? And sometimes that's placed upon believers as well and saying, look, you know, you really shouldn't be mourning. They're in heaven. But the Bible doesn't say that we don't mourn. It says that we don't mourn as unbelievers without hope. So in the midst of our missing a loved one, we have hope. But there is still a mourning process uh, to, to go through. And I think it's wise, as, especially if you lose someone who is really close to you, to take some time to slow down and to mourn because the grief is going to catch up with you. If you don't take time to slow down and mourn, it, it's going to come and hit you with a ton of bricks. But what we find here is they're taking time to mourn. They're taking time to slow down and process what has taken place. And Jacob's an old man, right? 
He's 137 years old and and he dies and they're still taking time to stop and, and process it. It's very rare for someone even to take one week off of work when someone very close to them has passed away. All we know what to do is go back to work. Pretend like nothing happened, right? Don't, don't talk about it. And, and I think there's some wisdom and value in slowing down and mourning, not in a place of desperation, having hope in the midst of our mourning, but, but taking the time to, to grieve and allow the Lord to, to comfort us. In verse 12, so his sons did for him just as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. What a legacy, a legacy of faith. As the brothers are there burying their father, Jacob, who's been embalmed, they've got to think about this land of Canaan. It's been a while since they've been in in Canaan. And remembering God's promise that God has said that this land would be given unto them. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and will actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Maybe the only reason Joseph has been nice to us is because of dad. Now that dad's gone, maybe he's going to get revenge for the evil that we have done to him. Fear starts to overcome them. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servant of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, we don't know if Jacob actually gave this instruction. It seems to me that the brothers are now consumed with fear. And so they're like, well, we better pull the dad card. So I was, I was talking to dad right before he passed away. And he said, you better be nice to me, right? If, if you love dad, no, no revenge upon, upon me. Joseph's heart weeps at this point. Why do you think he weeps? I think Joseph is hurt that the brothers haven't received his forgiveness. Thinking, hey, we're further down this road of reconciliation and trust. It made me think, how many times does the Lord maybe grieve because we haven't fully received his forgiveness? Like, Jesus, did you mean it? You really forgive all of my sins? Or, Am I forgiven? Really? really, am I forgiven? Could you, could you please forgive me? It's like, oh, his heart must grieve and go, yeah, I really forgive you. I really meant it. You know, my sacrifice really does forgive you of your sins. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, behold, we're your servants. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? He says, you're accountable to God, not to me. You don't need to be afraid. And to me, this becomes the anthem, the theme, the banner of Joseph's life is verse 20. It's worth underlining, meditating on. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. He says, look, I know you guys meant it for evil. I know it was evil in your heart, hatred in your heart. When you wanted to murder me, then you decided to sell me as a slave. But God, but God, 
the intervention of God, God having the last word. It's not the evil of the brothers that had the last word. It's the Lord that had the last word. So I want to bring out three things of this verse, if you're taking notes. And the first is this, evil doesn't have the final word. Evil doesn't have the final word. You might be in the midst of a situation where someone has done evil against you. You're in Joseph's shoes. And you're thinking that evil has ruined your life. That's had to be what Joseph thought. My my brothers sold me as a slave. Their evil choices has caused me to be a slave. Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him of rape. The evil that she did caused him to be a prisoner. But that didn't have the final word in his life. What's the next thing this verse says? It says, but God meant it for good. So God is bigger than the evil that comes into our lives. Maybe we're in the place of the brothers where we have done evil to someone else. And we're struggling with what we've done. God's able to take the mess that we've created and turn it together for good. And so that's the second point. God is working good out of sin and tragedy. This is such a powerful statement. But God meant it for good to save many people's lives. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I think largely this verse gets misunderstood because we think God's going to work all things together for good according to my perspective. It's he works all things together for good according to his purpose. He's got a plan in it for his glory to get his message out. And that may be different than what I perceive to be good. But ultimately, he's working. He's working. So someone has done evil against you. God is not condoning that evil. He's not saying that evil was right. It was absolutely wrong. It was a sinful choice. But he's able to come and intervene. And he's able to bring good out of an evil situation, out of sin and tragedy. Have you ever seen that in your life? Can you look back at your life and go, this is the evil that I did. This is the evil that someone else did. This is the sin. This is the mess. This is the tragedy. And God came in in the midst of that and worked it together for good. And he saved people's lives. He declared his glory. He worked it out. (laughs) That's so comforting. It's so assuring. When we are the victim of someone committing evil against us, we can get so consumed with that person. We can play it over and over in our minds. They sold me as a slave. They sold me as a slave. They were supposed to be the ones to love me and look out for me, and here they betrayed me. And we play that over and over and over, and and we give that person too much power. We give that person too much control. We overdwell on on what has taken place and to realize, you know what, that's not the final word of my life. The evil is not the final word in my life. God's working things together for good. And this brings me to the third point, and that is, do we see and accept his work? Do we see and accept his work? Joseph is able to look back at this point in his life and go, guys, let it go. I forgive you. I love you. It really is water under the bridge. I've buried the hatchet and I'm not going to dig it up. If you bury the hatchet, you can't leave the handle out. Say, I'm going to just wait 
to grab it and get some, some revenge. He saw God's work. He saw God's plan. He accepted God's plan. And for us to not wrestle with God's plan, but have peace in our Heavenly Father and say, okay, I get it. God, you're working. I, I see your plan, and I'm accepting it in my heart. I'm, I'm accepting it in, in my life. So there's many times that we will not necessarily feel this truth, but to believe it by faith. Saying, I'm not perceiving this to be true with my emotions, but God, I know that evil doesn't have the final word. I know that you're working good out of tragedy and sin. And then as we see the plan begin to unfold to be able to accept his work, to be able to forgive and to rejoice in what the Lord's doing. Verse 21, now therefore do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. A great picture of grace and kindness. Joseph says, I'm gonna provide for you. And he speaks words of kindness to them and comforts them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph sought Ephraim's children to the third generation, to the children of Macri, the son of Manasseh, were brought up on Joseph's knee. How many times were there in Joseph's life when he was a slave, when he was a prisoner, where he's like, this is it? I can't even ever picture getting married. There doesn't seem to be any hope. There's no reason to press on to the future. But what all did he experience? Second in command to Pharaoh. God blessing him with a wife and two sons, restored to his brother, restored to his dad. And then he gets to see to the third generation. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. To have grandkids grow up on his knees. One of the things we see in Joseph's life is keep persevering. We don't know what's around the corner. We might be a slave now. We might be a prisoner now, but that doesn't mean we're going to be a slave our whole life. That doesn't mean we're going to be a prisoner our whole life. You know, sometimes I think I've got the gift of pessimism, right? Where my outlook can be like, well, today kind of stinks, so every day is going to stink. Or today's kind of hard, so it's just, it's bound to get worse. I don't want to get my hopes up. I'm pretty sure... You know, the, the next 20 years are just going to be harder than the last 20 years than I did. And, you know, and, and pretty soon we can just kind of put our head down and we're, we're living life with this cloud that just follows us and rain is, is, is coming, coming upon us. And that's really how Jacob lived, didn't he? Once Joseph was killed, from his perspective, he's like, all things are, are against me. And Joseph's life ends with great joy. You never know what God's got in store in our lives. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. This expression of faith This legacy of faith has been passed to Joseph. He believes that God is going to give them the land of Canaan. He instructs that his bones would be buried in Egypt, pronounces that God is going to give them the promised land. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
So God's grace and God's faithfulness is seen in the birth of Israel, of these 12 sons, these 12 sinners who fell short. God uses these 12 sons to bring about his chosen people. It all started wrong in Jacob's family from the very beginning, from the honeymoon, if you would remember. He's married to sisters, takes on their handmaidens, has four wives, and there's a baby war that happens, right? To try to earn Jacob's affection. And before you know it, you've got 12 sons and there's jealousy. You know the story. And in the midst of this brokenness, God says, from these 12, I'm going to birth the nation of Israel. God's grace and God's faithfulness seen. We also see that God has the final word, not the evil of the brothers. God is the one who has the final word. Don't believe, don't accept that the evil that's done to you or the evil that you've committed against someone else has the final word. You're giving it too much power. God has the final word. God's working in the midst of that sin and that tragedy to work out his plan. That's the beauty of his redemption. That's the beauty of of his grace. So what really stands out to you with the book of Genesis? Was it the creation account? Was it Abraham's faith? Was it the life of Joseph? Maybe say take some time the rest of this week and just meditate on the, the book of Genesis. We spent the last few months going through this book. What what really stands out to me? What are the lessons that God wants me to hold on to? And we'll continue the journey in the book of Exodus next week. So let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're faithful. Even in the midst of a messy, dysfunctional, sinful family, you birth your chosen people, the nation of Israel that you're still faithful to this day. Lord, we thank you for the life of Joseph and what we're able to learn from his life and reflect upon his life. We rejoice that evil doesn't have the final word, that you're able to take what others have meant for evil and you turn it for good. So we rest in that. We take hope in that. Lord, you continue to just bless the Wednesday night study. Lord, give us strength. And as we go into the book of Exodus, would you show us more of your character and your love? We thank you for this time of communion. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.